This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we venture to London's Victoria and Albert Museum to visit their latest exhibition, Fashioning Masculinities, The Art of Menswear. Across the next 30 minutes, we'll meet the co-curator and a couple of the designers featured in the show. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. The Victoria and Albert Museum's new show, Fashioning Masculinities, is not, as its name might suggest, simply a fine display of menswear, although there's plenty of smart suits and tasteful tailoring to see. The show, instead, looks at how society's perception of manliness has changed across the years and how this perception has been expressed through clothing and grooming. Over the course of this episode, we'll look at how our identities are shaped by the way we dress. To find out more about this and the exhibition itself, Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, sat down with Rosalind McKeever, co-curator of the show. McKeever began by sharing why the exhibition felt relevant to put on today. What's sort of surprising is that this is the first major exhibition on menswear at the V&A. We've had a few shows, small displays in the past. We've been building steadily our menswear collections, but it felt like a really important moment to do this. And this has been in the making for a few years now, exactly responding to this moment of great creativity within the menswear industry, within this real boom of attention towards the menswear industry. So we wanted to be able to reflect that and really think about how our historical collections connect with this contemporary moment. And also, obviously, particularly over the last years, we've been really thinking about what menswear could be and has been, and really thinking about all of those designers operating at the boundaries of gendered dress. So really looking at how historical collections can inform the ways that designers are engaging with expressing gender through clothes. And you mentioned that this was a few years in the making. So can you talk us also through your research process over these years and and how you went about coming up with the main themes? Our approach, and I worked with Claire Wilcox, Senior Curator of Fashion, to really, it felt like, comb the whole V&A museum to think about where we find menswear. So that involved going through our wonderful holdings in the fashion and textile collections, but also looking at our painting, sculpture, photography, works on paper. We've even got sort of ceramics. We have an action man from the Museum of Childhood. Going through all of these collections to find the objects that inform our understanding of how artists and designers have constructed and deconstructed an idea of masculinity using clothes. Like you say, this is a fashion exhibition in its essence, but you've mixed in art and sculpture in the show. Tell us why you decided to do this and and what it brings to the exhibition. We really wanted to think about the performative nature of gender and clothes. So think about how these clothes have been worn. And so, for example, with painted portraits, we really have an opportunity to show people the kind of attitude behind the way people wear clothes. So, for example, we have this 
fabulous portrait from the 16th century by an artist called Sofonisba Anguissola, a female artist in Renaissance Italy, who painted this young prince with a cape over his shoulders and a popped collar. And just the way that he's swaggering in that cape is something that we really wanted to be able to bring to this exhibition to really enliven the way that we're showing these clothes. Another really interesting part is that you chose to show the exhibition thematically, not chronologically, which is the norm. Tell us why you made that decision with uh, alongside Claire and the benefits of choosing uh, that way. We didn't want to try and produce something that was chronological because it might feel kind of definitive, like these were the most important moments in menswear. And we wanted to do something a bit more creative and thoughtful around how we could show, as I say, this kind of construction of ideals in masculinity. And so our three sections, undressed, overdressed and redressed, are almost like we're taking the mannequin, the male mannequin of the first gallery. And in the first gallery, we're really talking about the nude body and underwear. So taking this mannequin, putting them in underwear and then redressing them in the kind of grandeur of 18th century court attire, and then redressing them again in the 19th and 20th century suit to kind of take the same figure through these different phases of menswear to show not only the variety, we move from really extravagant clothes in the 17th century, for example. We have examples of gorgeous lace. We have pink clothing, floral clothing, colourful clothing. And then taking that through into the perfectionism, the refinement of beautiful, beautiful tailoring. Like you say, you mix different uh, genres and eras together in, in the different rooms. So we'd love to hear your take on uh, the changes that you've seen from uh, the 15th century to modern day in menswear, dressing and in attitudes towards uh, gender and gender expression. So many changes come through in the exhibition, but also so many kind of continuities. And that's one thing that we thought was really interesting about this non-chronological approach is that we could really draw those out. So, for example, we start with the white shirt as a very simple part of menswear attire, but as something that used to be a garment of underwear that you would never show to anyone except your most intimate circles. And then that becoming outerwear is a real point of transition. Whereas, for example, in the second gallery, we're really looking at how there's a shift between, for example, in the 18th century, pink was a symbol of colour and wealth. It was nothing to do with gender. So it was a sign of this power that then in the 21st century, younger designers who are embracing pink are using it in a very different way. So, for example, we have a portrait of someone in the 18th century who was part of the French nobility wearing beautiful pink, wonderful lace. And we have that next to a design by Harris Reed, which is very much about gender fluidity. So we have a portrait of someone highly conservative next to someone who's really pushing ideas of gender. But visually, they're very similar. And also in the third room, you really explore tailoring in depth. How has tailoring evolved over the past years and how has it stayed the same? 
there's a beautiful continuity. We have wonderful examples from the early 19th century of clothing inspired by the look of Beau Brummel. So that cutaway dark jacket, those tight white trousers. We have that, but you see that resonating all the way through the 19th and 20th century as we explore it in the galleries. But then you really see designers pushing against that. And so on one side, you have the kind of appropriation of the suit. So different kinds of people using the suit as this symbol of access, the symbol of power, the symbol of privilege. So, for example, there we're thinking about the queer community using the tuxedo and women as well as this way of kind of donning masculinity. But then also you have menswear designers who are taking the suit and kind of really unpicking it. So we have wonderful examples there by Jonathan Anderson, by Rick Owens, where they're really playing with the idea of what a suit could be. They're taking it to its simplest idea. You mentioned some of the brands that are on display at the show. Can you tell us about some of the most interesting or most special pieces from you, both from the established names and the archival pieces and also some of the exciting young names that you feature in the exhibition. We have a wonderful range of designers within the exhibition and we wanted to pay homage to the greats of menswear. So just talking about women in tuxedos and of course we have an Yves Saint Laurent Le Smoking. And another example of women's wear that we've included in the exhibition is a Gianni Versace look from the 1990s, which is most likely inspired by one of the paintings in the V&A's collection as Gianni Versace was coming to visit the V&A a lot in the 90s. So it's really interesting to see those those connections. And we also find those kind of connections with the younger designers. So for example, Rema Rahman, who's a designer who has his fabrics made in Bangladesh and then tailors them in London and is really interested in that relationship between London East End tailoring and Bangladeshi fabrics. So he comes to the V&A and looks at our Asian collections and takes inspiration from those patterns. We spoke about the first room, which focuses on underwear, moving into the second thematic gallery that goes into colour and uh, followed by tailoring. But you also finish in it with a very special uh, room that features those one-of-a-kind uh, red carpet dresses that have been worn by the likes of Harry Styles and, uh, and the video in the background. So tell us a little bit about that room and, and how it sort of brings everything together and ends mm -hmm. the exhibition on a high. In the years that we've been working on this exhibition, as I've said, we've seen this real transformation in the way that people are talking about menswear and masculinity, not only kind of on the catwalk, but in wider society. And so we wanted to end with these three moments that had such impact, particularly on social media, and felt really important in the way that people were talking about this. So we have the gown that Billy Porter wore to the Oscars in 2019, the extraordinary tuxedo with the enormous skirt that was designed by Christian Siriano. We have Bimini Bomboulash's wedding dress from the finale of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. And Bimini wore that because you end a fashion show with a wedding dress. So we're ending a fashion show with a wedding dress, even if it's a menswear show. And finally, we have the dress worn by Harry Styles on the cover of US Vogue as the first solo 
male cover star. And the fact that Harry Styles wore a dress designed by Gucci really brought that conversation to a wider audience. So we wanted to make this a really joyful ending to the show with this extraordinary AV commission from the artist Quentin Jones that allowed us to really pick up questions of gender non-conforming through dress that really run through the whole exhibition. So we have skirted garments throughout the exhibition and we have people dressing beyond the binary throughout, but at the end felt like this really celebratory contemporary moment. And I guess the V&A bringing those conversations into the museum and, and, and those topics is really important and you're opening them up to a new audience. So what would you hope that visitors take away from the exhibition? I hope, as I've said, that young designers really take inspiration from it, but I hope that everyone takes a little bit of inspiration from it in terms of wearing what makes them feel good. I think what we can demonstrate in this exhibition that perceptions of masculinity have shifted so much over time that there's no point trying to conform just wear what feels good. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that that Sophonisba Anguissola portrait that I described earlier with this young guy with such swagger, that that kind of confidence can come out of these portraits and into our visitors and allow them to leave the museum with a bit of a skip in their step and excitement about what they're going to wear tomorrow. That was Rosalind McKeever speaking to Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. We'll hear from Natalie again later in the show. One of the designers mentioned in that conversation there was Rahima Rahman. A London-based designer with Bangladeshi heritage, Rahman, through his namesake label, is redefining what it means for fashion to be made in Bangladesh. We caught up with him to find out more about his work and one of his designs which features in the exhibition. On this occasion, the multidisciplinary maker joined us down the line from a bustling Dakar. So the piece in the exhibition, um, Fashion Masculinities at the V&A, it's a tailored denim piece. The tailoring is based off many different genders and sexualities that I have around me. And actually having something that works for many different bodies, but still using the smartness of tailoring actually really helped the fit. The textile itself, which is what I'm really proud about, is in collaboration with a company in Bangladesh called Aranya, and they are the sustainable natural dye experts of South Asia. They very much cater towards the local market, but then I've been working with them a lot to elevate their design and make textiles. And I've created this like four color print. It's lots of block printing. It's using a wax and resist. And because it's on a denim and because everything is top stitched down, I love the idea that it's just like this very durable piece that someone can wear, throw into a washing machine. It might be expensive because it's sustainable and it's artisanal, but it shouldn't be handled with care. And I think there's always this conversation I quite like that you can just crumple it up and throw it into a bag. Craftsmanship for me is very much at the core of everything that the brand does. And the reason why is because the more that I researched and the more that I saw about the depletion of craftsmanship in South Asia, is predominantly Bangladesh and very much from the region that my parents are from. That's actually how the brand started. Before that, I was working for other people. A lot of conversations around sustainability, craftsmanship um, and ethics were kept coming up. I kept seeing things that actually weren't sustainable. No one could have done it for a long time. They were like one-off projects, which did make an impact, but it was very small. The people who went over to Asia, they were still at the core of it. Whereas what I like about what I've built is that at the core of it is actually helping these artisans and actually elevating what they do. 
Bangladesh went from being the best in the world that could produce textiles of weaving, of jamdani weave, block printing, which the VNA have in their archives and I reference a lot in my work. I really want to work with the artisans to actually get to that level and if, if anything surpass it, give the artisans an opportunity to surpass the things that I reference. Just to know that we're now the best again because they have the ability, they've just lost the belief because they've just been making very local things for local people for a very long time where it's only just one or two colours, whereas the textiles that I'm making with them are one-offs. It's almost like as if they're also having the opportunity to show off through me just kind of like pushing them. Well, there's this textile that I did for spring summer and it was on a silk and when I first drew it and I explained it to the artisans they really didn't get it because obviously they're so used to working with just one or two colours I was like no 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 honestly I saw a sample in the VNA I know it's possible someone did it from this region we were like doing these layers of wax where the wax becomes so heavy and black and it was on a silk when it was dipped into the hot water right at the end all of us were around there was like 20 of us I didn't even know if it was going to work and then this like one piece of fabric came out and everyone was like oh my god oh my god this is amazing and then for me that was the first time that they really trusted in me and, and saw actually what I was trying to do now it's a lot easier because now when I go with these what they call crazy ideas they just believe in them and we just do it when I started the brand, I kept thinking about how can I do this better than the people who have come before me? How can I create a line that whoever comes after me can actually pick this up and go even further, maybe with tech, because I don't have that skill set. The sustainability thing has always been a thing for me. I graduated from St. Martin, so I saw a lot of the people that I even graduated with creating these very luxurious brands. But actually, what I keep thinking about is the legacy. After we die, after I die, after this brand dies, what's going to happen with all these clothes? What am I actually leaving for the planet? The industry has been built for so long to not think about that. Designers, we have that power. We have to think about we're not forever, nothing is forever. And ultimately, this climate change situation is reminding us of that always. So we've got to do something and design, I think, can be the solution. Within all of the garments, there's a seed, and I really make sure that everything is biodegradable. Doesn't matter where this garment will end up, be it in my lifetime or after, but like this garment will end up somewhere, it will completely decompose, and so the garment itself will create a bed, and then this one seed that's within the facing will have this bed of nutrients that's made from all natural dyes and all the stuff that is really good for it to then help a tree grow. Growing up, my dad had this obsession with tailoring because he himself was a tailor. And to be honest, even now, he still works in the factories in East London. Whenever we would have a special occasion, my mum was so obsessed with having us in like South Asian clothing. But then my dad was very obsessed with having us in tailoring, like he really wanted us to assimilate. Then he would make us tailoring in the house for a special occasion and I'd, and I'd wear it. And I'd always see him make things for us. And I grew up knowing how to sew, I grew up knowing how to make things. That it felt quite natural to kind of follow this as a job. And if anything push what he had already laid out. After I graduated, he kept telling me like, why don't you make um, open up a tailoring shop? And I was like, no, 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 that's like, like I get that that's as far as you could see. And obviously now he sees how far it could go. He always felt like he was just always the maker. And, and even then, like the peak of that making career-wise was to have a shop where you had a team of makers. And it was never actually, no, I could be the one who designs what is being made and make it. And I love the idea that now I'm almost showing him that it's possible to not only design what you were making, but also have a team of people who made it and everything be in-house. 
for me that's really quite beautiful because then it really proves to all the Bengali people who really built the fashion industry for what it is today by sewing bits of aquascutum and Burberry in their living rooms while their kids are sleeping and all of that. Their kids can actually take the legacy that they left down and all the hard work that they did, pick it up and actually do something even bigger. This is the first time I walked into an exhibition and I felt very seen. Or was that me walking into that space with Nicholas Daly, Priya Alualia? We've all been trying to do this work about decolonizing spaces. And when we walked in, I was just like, yo, this is all of us in a space. We all work together continuously outside of these very like established like white spaces. And then suddenly we were in it. It's because of these curators and what they really envisioned for this space. And I really want to commend them for it. And I really encourage everyone to go see it because it's the first time where you really walk into a space and it's, my God, it's so queer. And my God, there's so many people of colour. And then to be opposite stuff that I saw in the archive, to have my work alongside it and then have like Margiela in the same space and Prada and all of this incredible pieces and to be in the same conversation with them. It's just a moment of being proud and I'm very proud. Thanks to Rahima Rahman there, speaking to us from Dhaka, Bangladesh. Lastly on today's show, we meet Edward Crutchley, a leading young creative who has risen to prominence thanks to his designs made with artisanal textiles, which has seen him work with the likes of wool weavers in his native Yorkshire and silk developers in Japan. He's also garnered attention with his silhouettes that blur the boundaries of gendered clothing. With this in mind, Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, caught up with Crutchley to talk about the appearance of his work in fashioning masculinities. He began by describing his featured pieces and what it means to see them in the context of a museum. It's two pieces, but we call it a dress because it's much easier to, to talk about in that way. But it's a corset and a skirt. The original inspiration was a robe anglaise from the... 1720s, approximately 1728. That was the date of the pattern that we worked from. But because we knew that we wanted to have this particular piece on a man, we changed the form of the bodice. So we brought the waist in a little more and then fanned out, made the shoulders flatter, wider, modernised the shape of the armhole. So it was a very historically inspired thing, but something that was cut for a contemporary male body. It was really about the manipulation of what a masculine silhouette is. This tiny waist, this huge hips, really contrary to the established norms of the masculine silhouette. That was what we found really interesting to play with. I'd been speaking with the V&A summer of 2019, and they were talking about this exhibition and they'd love to use a piece. And they'd originally chosen a piece from my Woolmart collection, which was a coat with all this lace jacquard in it. And then obviously we all know what comes next. And then when they were starting to think about the exhibition again, they asked for a different piece, which was another big skirt, but with a latex top. And I said, well, yes, you're more than welcome to it. But what about this? Sent over a sketch because that was all that existed at the time. It was something that they really loved and wanted. It was like, it's exactly what we need. I'm like, great, let's make it. 
Amazing. And is it quite important part of your process to create this more technical and challenging garments and include them in your lineups alongside the more commercial pieces that you produce? Yes, because for me, to be honest, it's the easiest way to communicate ideas. You can do it through more commercial pieces, but the process is harder and you sometimes end up with this weird hybrid thing that isn't commercial but doesn't really say what you want it to say. So for me, if it's for a show, it's better to go full out and do exactly what you want. You can have the Hawaiian shirts on the rack in the sales room. It's fine. They don't need to be on the runway. And also for me, because... Actually, most of my work is consultancy work. I'm not working on my own label most of the time. I kind of just want to do what I want to do. It's the opportunity for me to have like free reign to go full pelt and really explore the ideas that I've got that I can't explore in the other jobs that I do. With these creative pieces, it sounds like historical research was a big part of it as well. Is that something that you do on the regular and it affects the way you design and, and influences your perception of, of design and also gender? Very much so. Fashion is secular. That's its nature. Nothing is new. Everything has been seen before. It's only our interpretation of it that is new. And I find that really interesting and that makes me want to look more closely at historical fashions or fashions from different cultures. The way that people dress I find is fascinating because that's the way we express who we are to the outside world. There's always something to discover, even though having just said that nothing is new, you can always find something new. <laughs> The piece that you that's been shown at the VNA is right next to a historical mm. costume. Do you find that there is more similarities than differences, despite the vast time difference between that research that you do in, in historical costume and, mm. and your work now and the way men dress? Really, the main difference is the eye of the audience, because those historical pieces were not, for want of a better term, shocking. They were normal. And this display of masculinity was something that was normal. We're talking normal for very rich people, but that's within the context of what we're talking about in the exhibition. The key difference between the two is how we view the piece that I have there as a piece of contemporary fashion. And that, for me, is the key difference. I mean, there are technical differences in the fabrication, the sewing, etc. But the essence of the two are really the same. And more generally speaking, given both the work that you do for your own label and the consultancy work for Dior and what you did with Louis Vuitton, what are the biggest differences in the men's scene right now? And how have things been changing and evolving in the last few years, whether it's in terms of design, in the, the, the way people shop, the way they approach gender. When we talk about that particular subject, there's really two key points. There's what we see presented and what is sold in reality. I mean, we as designers, creatives, journalists, we feel that this direction of genderless is the correct thing of what we should be doing in society. The reality of that is that men buy what they've always bought. The change is going to be slow. I think that people who are now in their early to mid-20s have a very 
different outlook than perhaps my generation on the way that they dress themselves. And that's really interesting and exciting. And maybe that is the beginning of this societal change that we want to see in this way of addressing the dressing of gender. But ultimately, what goes into stores is shirts and chinos and jeans. How do you deal with that reality as a creative and as a designer who wants to push the boundaries? And how do you find your balance? Well, the way that I approach sales has always been the same. There is no gender to our garments. We put everything on one rail and it's up to the buyers to choose whether they want to market that at men or women or everyone. So from my point of view, I don't change my approach. It's up to other people to interpret it as they wish. And historically for us within sales, when we were only selling as a menswear brand, even if we were selling to men's stores, it was a lot of women who were buying it anyway. I personally don't give it much thought because ultimately it's down to the customer to decide. And do you find that it is important for institutions like the V&A to be having those conversations, even if at the end of the day, stores do more conventional buys for the general public to start to think about those issues and those topics and to evolve their thinking a little bit? Absolutely. I think it's key. And institutions like the V&A take on that, not responsibility, but that role of communicating to a wider audience than we could ever hope to reach. I think particularly within fashion, we talk very much to ourselves and it's very difficult to reach out to other people's. And that's something that I think fashioning masculinities as an exhibition can really do. The reach is going to be enormous. I did a video with the V&A and just looking at the comments on YouTube, it's really fascinating to see how people talk about things and their reactions, which aren't always good. But for me, it's almost the negative reaction that I find more interesting because then I want to understand why people feel like that. I think there was one woman commenting that she felt that she'd been robbed of this feminine gown and this feminine identity. I found that fascinating. How so? Because I didn't understand it at all. I think probably because I'm a queer person, my perception of what masculinity and femininity are are perhaps very different to other people's. But I was just really fascinated, especially when she made this comparison to cultural appropriation and how she felt this had been appropriated from her. And I really found that interesting. And it just made me want to do it more. <laughs> And is it, do you, do you like the idea of being part of the exhibition and opening yourself up to a completely new audience, which includes people that might not understand you as much as your fashion audience? Is that something that's quite interesting to you and that even might influence next collections and the way you think about design in general? Being a part of a Victorian Albert Museum exhibition is the highlight of my career. I'm so excited about it. And so flattered that they would choose to include me in this room of like the most amazing designers throughout history. It's really incredible. I'm really excited for a wider audience to see what I'm doing. And the V&A have been amazingly supportive. They've made postcards. I think a photo of that dress is on the cover of the postcard book, which is amazing. And it's just so exciting and wonderful. Whether it will influence what I'm doing moving forward? No, I don't think so. 
the last maybe four years have been a bit of a wavy path in terms of direction for me. But I think the last two, three collections, things have really started to solidify in where I want to take things and what I want to talk about. So, no, I don't think it will make any difference at all. <laughs> Edward Crutchley there, in conversation with our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. And that's all for today's show. Fashioning Masculinities, The Art of Menswear is on at London's Victoria and Albert Museum until the 6th of November 2022. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Filmer Court and Maylee Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening.